after all these years, two weeks ago was my 20th anniversary on staff. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm, Billy, and they're still mistreating me, brother. Just before we get into the word, do allow me to make a personal comment. Of course, I'm not sure how you will disallow that. Here I am. <laughs> and if they cut off the machine, I can still talk loud enough so you'll still hear me. <laughs> Don't you love big mouth people? Thank you for some of the big mouths. I like that. You know, as we're going, as we are going through this series, I really want to give thanks and give God's grace the due that he deserves. You know, as the senior pastor, Keith is not the oldest guy on staff. I outweigh him by almost 21 years. I'm just the senior who is on the staff, who is a pastor. But I have just been amazed. And, and he didn't ask me to say this, and he doesn't pay me for this. Although you should consider some of these issues. To... <laughs> Wouldn't hurt. But I have actually, really, genuinely been, been amazed with two things. With his ability to hear from God as to what we should share. Not God's ability to speak. I'm never amazed at that. I'm always amazed at can we hear him and do we hear him. Amen? And then not only that, but to get a burden for a message or a series of messages and to allow us as staff members to sit together with him as he would ask, what are you hearing from God? What is God putting on your heart? What would you like to bring before God's people that he has been ministering to you and wants to minister through you, releasing this pulpit into our hands? And so, really, thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thanks be to God for his grace. I'm still working upon Matt for this, but for other issues, he and I know what that's all about, but, you know, that's a personal matter which I won't comment about publicly <laughs> concerning the pivot. But, I mean, no, thank you. <laughs> Some of these guys need to be picked on. You know that. Well, this morning, we continue what, as you already have heard, in this series that the Holy Spirit put in Keith's heart. And really, you know, when you think about it, it's, it's so fundamentally important and significant, you just wonder, why don't we do this more often? And I don't know what it is about us as human beings, but we don't think clearly a very much part of the time. 
But we're being introduced or maybe reintroduced. So what is that commercial being introduced for the first? What, how does it go? The, tasting, it tasting it again for the first, very first time. I suppose if you're a Kellogg's person, you know what that's all about. But at any rate, being reintroduced to God, getting to know our God, not what we want to know about Him, but we, what we need to know about Him, what He wants to show us about Himself. If we're not careful, there are certain categories we want to know about God, and that's great but they may not be the salient categories that he wants to reveal to us concerning himself. So during the series we've already learned, we learn, remember, that God is faithful. We've learned that, that God is sovereign. We've learned that God is holy. And remember that word kadash, holy means completely other than. There is no category in the created order that can correctly and effectively and comprehensively communicate who God is. He is so different from everything that we know and experience and can know and even imagine that he's off the scale. He's holy. And everything about him, everything about him is absolutely off the scale. He's holy. That's what that word holy means. And last week, we began to be introduced to God as love, this great understanding of one of the central characteristics of who God is, but remembering that that love is a unique and holy and other than love that you and I may understand. And this morning, out of that understanding of God's love, because what we'll talk about this morning is motivated and empowered by, if you would, or given to us as a consequence of God's love. We're going to talk this morning about the God who restores. There is one reason that I can stand this morning before you. As a man who should not be listened to, but who should be listened to. And that is not because of eloquence, not because of education, not because of experience in a natural form. But because God restores sinners, foolish people, faulty frail, failing humanity. Amen? God is the God who restores. Father, perhaps all of us, but most of us know this already about you, but this morning, would you cause this truth of who you are as Keith has already prayed, to sink so deeply into our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Father, that no matter what we are going through, 
have gone through or will experience. Father, we know that we are walking on the path of restoration through it all. Father, thank you. Thank you that when you saved us, you didn't say, now I'll give you 10 chances. And after that, it's too late. You're going to forfeit your salvation. Father, thank you that time and time and time again that we should have forfeited. We did not because your restoration work and power always overcame the reason for our forfeiture. Thank you for that. Father, may we glean from the lives of some of your people that as you were then, you are today because you are the God who does not change. There is no variation with you. There are no favorites with you. Every man, woman, and child in the kingdom is as important to you as every other one. As if he or she were the only one. Father, cause this to go deep into us so that we may be able to recognize and receive and be changed by your restorative work. In Jesus' name, amen. The God who restores, restores our future. How many of us have ever thought that we have sinned too much, too many mistakes, too much wrong, too much of whatever? And, and there is that nagging little voice in us which says, this time you've gone too far. This time you've stepped over the line. This time it's too late. What God promised, what God said he would do, what you were hoping he would do, it's not going to happen. It, even if it does happen, it's going to be changed so much and reduced in its blessing and power that oh, you'll, you'll scrape by, you'll get in, but look at what you could have had. Any of us ever get those kinds of thoughts and those whispers in our lives? Anyone? Yes, all of us have, I'm sure. Keith last week began to introduce us to one of the greatest men of the Bible, a man that all of us know. Remember the little short guy who brought down the big guy? What's his name? David, King David. Now, you remember King David? You remember the story? You may have seen a movie about him. He's the Lord's anointed, the man through whom the Messiah would be able to come. The Lord said, I am going to bring forth 
the Messiah, the anointed one, through your loins, through your generation, through your son and his son and his son, and all the way down to Mary and Joseph. And that one who will be born will be directly coming from your body, David, all the way through the generations. Remember the promise. David has a wonderful future in front of him, not only as the king, but spiritually. I'm going to be the progenitor of the Messiah. Man, can you imagine a greater responsibility that would be placed upon you or me to move us to be good people and to keep us in line. But you see, isn't it interesting that even promises and responsibilities don't have the power to keep me and you from sinning? Only the grace of God. You remember David, don't you? This great king, this wonderful man through whom God is beginning to develop and enlarge and empower the nation of Israel. And upon this king's shoulders, all the redemption of the world rests as he has been promised to be the man through whom the Messiah would come. You remember David. Keith talked to us last week about David remaining home. Kings are supposed to be out fighting people during this particular season. David's at home. David has a pretty tall house and he has his window here and down there is two or three stories lower is a rooftop of another house. It's the house of this guy named Uriah and his wife Bathsheba. And there's a bathtub on the roof. Now, last week, and rightly so, Keith pointed to David's duplicity in this. Remember that? But let's, ladies, you're living next door to a man whose bedroom window oversees your flat roof. And you were going to go outside knowing he's there to take a bath. Now, come on. Now, come on. Come on. What's on your mind? My husband ain't here. The king is next door, Evan. And if we can get something going, there's just no telling what I can get out of this. this. They're both wrong. And you remember the story. Who is this King David, this mighty man of God who has on him the weight of the future of the world, spiritually speaking and even naturally speaking? He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. And worse than any of it, the worst is that he is a defamer of the name of the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. 
You know, isn't it interesting that with this kind of activity on this man's part, there is no discussion about divorce? No discussion about divorce. David's future seems to be going up in flames. You see, because if my future is predicated upon and based in and a result of my practice, then my future is going up in flames. Amen? But aren't you glad this isn't how God is? Listen to this word in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, as the Lord tells David what's happening and what he's going to do. Thus saith the Lord, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of my own house out of your own house, and I will take wives before your eyes, and I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Remember verse 14. Bathsheba has a child, a son. And verse 14 succinctly says this. The child born to you shall die. Is this the son through whom the Messiah will come? Is everything finished? Oh my God, have I crossed the line? Is all hope over? Will I never be able to overcome this sin? Will I have to live the rest of my life in crushing defeat? Or at least at a very low level? Of obedience. You see, obviously David was worried that he'd lost God's presence and grace. Listen to what he says in Psalm 51:11. David prays that the continuance of God's goodwill and work in him. He prays for that. He prays that, oh Lord, may I not be treated according to my sin. He's afraid, and he has a right to be. Because the law says he should have been stoned to death. And he prays this. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Oh, Lord, don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, don't take away your presence and your work and your promise. Don't destroy my future. Don't give it to someone else. And then as a result of that, After that, David prays for restoration. You see, in the midst of the agony of the reality of what his sin has done and the possibility of losing everything, David asks, Lord, be merciful to me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And then he says, restore to me. You see, because David knows this God who restores He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He says, restore me, O Lord. 
What was God's answer? What did the Lord do? What was the response of a holy God who cannot, will not tolerate sin? What is his response to David? What is his response to this terrible set of sins? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. God's response, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. This is God's response to the hideousness of David's life. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So the Lord called his name, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Solomon. The word Solomon means what? Peace. But the word Jedidiah what does this name mean, Jedidiah? You see, in naming the son, the Lord says through Nathan, who had to confront David with his son, with his sin, the Lord says to David through Nathan, This is my response to your prayer. You will name this boy Jedidiah. You named him Solomon, I'm naming him Jedidiah. The name Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Why is that so important? What does that say to us, beloved? Years later, there will be another son who will come up out of the waters of baptism and the heavens will open to him and the voice of God the Father will say, this is my beloved son. Oh, what is God doing here? He's not just giving him an heir. He's pouring, pouring blessings upon blessings upon this man, David. Not only does he allow David to call him Solomon, but he says there's more than just Solomon here. This man is more than just the heir. This man is a display of my great love for you, David and Bathsheba. I mean, how could God allow the Messiah to come through a man like David? How can this happen? How can God do this kind of a work in the face of this kind of rebellion and sin? Premeditated sin. Thought out ahead of time, planned and put into action. How can God, how can God treat this man this way by restoring him? You know why? Because God ain't no man. 
He is the God who restores. We ought to shout. Because God is not like a man. He's not like we are. You see, we would have done something. We would have had to make somebody pay. We would have retaliated. We would have disliked. I mean, can you imagine what did people feel like when they saw David restored like this? What was the rest of the congregation's attitude when the worst sinner in the whole place gets the greatest blessing? Huh? Right? Chris, right? Just want to make sure you're awake. I mean, right? Mayo, right? Do you hear the, 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 the sounds of Luke 15 in here? The young boy comes back after spending and wallowing all that time in the pig poop and with the daddy's money and with the prostitutes. The daddy actually brings it back home and gives him a party? What kind of a man is this? That God should do it. He's not a man, that's why. He's God who restores. Don't think of him like a man. Think of him as God Almighty, the great restorer of the broken down walls of our lives. You see, has your sin destroyed God's ability and desire to continue to bless you? Survey your life. Come on. Survey your life. And go back maybe this morning or to yesterday. We probably don't have to go back more than 24 hours. <laughs> Except for those of you who are dead. Do you believe that what you did, thought, or whatever, it is too late, no more blessings, or at least a huge decrease? You see, what's so amazing here is that not only God not only restores, but he takes David way past restoration. He takes him way past restoration. Just doesn't restore him. Okay, I'll give you a son. Calls his son the beloved, prefiguring the son of God who is the beloved of the father. I don't know, I don't know if this gets into you, but this rattles my cage in a good way. Give you a personal testimony. Hope I have time for all this. I was years ago. We were living on Henry Clay, and I, I you know, I don't remember all the circumstances, thankfully, but I was in a season of rebellion, not giving in to God's correction. Anybody recognize that? And I have an attitude of sin, baby. You see, sometimes God is just mean to interfere with my pleasures. I see heads nodding. I know that, yeah. And in the midst of all this, about 9 o'clock at night, a lady from the church calls me. I need to talk to you about whatever. Okay, go out on the porch, talking to her. And I don't know, for about 30 minutes or so, out of my mouth, out of the mouth of this 
mound of filth came the wisdom of God for her. I hung up, put the phone back in, on the, you know, went outside again, stood on the front porch, looked up, and I had one question. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? We should be experiencing that kind of a work of God on a regular basis to say to him, I don't know you. I thought I knew you, and I understood a little theology, and I know a couple of verses, but who are you? David could say that. Years later, years later, as recorded in Luke 19, we have another episode of someone encountering the God who restores. The Romans have been occupying the land for about 100 years. As you remember, they are harsh taskmasters. They enslave entire populations. They level exorbitant and burdensome taxes. You think you have taxes. We think we have them. We don't know anything about taxation. And the local boy, the Jewish boy, one of our own, is enriching himself by being the local tax collector. You remember Zacchaeus? A turncoat. Imagine how the family would have been treated. Ostracized. Turncoat. Hated. Filth. Someone needs to kill him. Hope he dies of cancer. traitor but you see Zacchaeus unbeknownst to him only beknownst to the sovereign God whom Matt told us about had an appointment to meet the God who restores Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay in your house today. I must be to you the God who will restore. I must be the God who restores. Why? Because this is who I am. You see, this is not just something that God does once in a while. This is his driving passion to restore us. Don't you ever think that you are asking God to do something he doesn't want to do. He is passionately pursuing 
restoration of our lives. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what you're going to do, God has a passion for restoration. Amen? So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Oh, look at this. Can you imagine that he is going to eat with him? Ooh, church. How many of us need restoration of that? You see, we think of sexual sins and we think of stealing. And so sometimes I think the worst sin of all is this down deep attitude of ingratitude for God to save such a sinner as I. So therefore, when he is working in any way, in anyone else, I should rejoice. That to God, I think, is worse than stealing and some of the other stuff. Let's be careful how we categorize this stuff. I ain't never stole nothing and I ain't committed adultery. I'm okay. And Zacchaeus, they have said, grumbled, he has gone into a guess of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus had an appointment with the God of restoration, with the God who restores. What was the result? Listen to the result from the mouth of this God who restores. And Jesus said to him today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I have come to restore you back to me. Yes, yes, restoration. These people are bad. They are mean as that snake. Hateful. Hurtful. Vengeful. Unkind, uncaring, and gratitude, and whatever. Into these lives come the God who restores You know why? Because it's God's good pleasure to restore us to himself. We need that kind of restoration. So rather than putting your emphasis on how bad you are, put your emphasis on how God will restore. How could God be so good to such a man as Zacchaeus? How can anybody be that good to such a piece of dirt as Zacchaeus? Because God is not a man. He is the God, Michael, who restores. God is not a man. He's Kadash. He's other than. He's the God who restores. You have a best friend. You poured yourself into this person. You've walked with this person. You've ministered to this person. You've 
given things to this person. You have just lavished upon this person the best time of your adulthood. And then this person denies you. Oh, there are people in this audience today, and you have experienced the denial through various means of those whom you thought were your friends. Amen? Amen. And you certainly don't want too much restoration in their lives because they really deserve what they get. I mean, we, 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 wanna, we don't want God to send them to hell. But we sure don't want God to do a whole lot of blessing. Relationship problems. I don't know. I haven't calculated it, but it seems to me about 80% of the folks that I get to share with are relational difficulties. You know, do you find that in yours? Maybe more. You see, we can be forgiving of a whole lot of stuff, but just don't let them hurt me or mine. See, that's where I draw the line. Oh, I know you did bad out there, that, but don't, not me, don't, don't, don't be like that with me, son. My husband better not do that with me. My wife, denial, denial of relationship, of love, of unity. How would you feel? How do you feel when these things happen? Because there are just loads of us in this room for whom this has happened. How do you feel? How have you responded? How are you responding? What do you want and expect from God for them, not for you? Well, I've been praying that I get this and that. What about for them? Our primary prayer should be for them. Well, I got hurt. I need some help from God. If you need help from God, then pray for the one who caused the damage. You ain't getting no help from God, or at least a little bit of it right now, because you're not releasing yourself to pray, to be like to those people like God is to us, the God who restores. How many of you are so glad that the last time we did something to deny God that he didn't deny us, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, then let's not deny him by denying those others, which is a deeper denial. See, God wants to get down into our souls deep. This stuff that we look at at the external, this and that and the other thing, is one level. But the real level is down in the attitudes and the motives and the thoughts and the feelings. Those are the, where the roots of sin grow so thick. Three and a half years, Peter's been blessed with Jesus' presence. 
one of his closest friends. In fact, Jesus even gives Peter the great revelation, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But from now on, you shall be called Peter. And upon this rock, this rock of the word of God, this revelation, I will build my church. I can just see Peter like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I told you I was the best one here. I told you I was better than you guys. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I got the revelation and y'all didn't, which just proves how much better I am and how much more Jesus loves me. All the day, how many of us all day long think like this? Come on, is this real or not? Are these real people? Are we going through these kinds of things? I'll never deny her. I got a sword. Can you imagine someone giving in to pornography like that? Can you imagine someone stealing? Can you imagine that kind of an act? Can you imagine that guy doesn't like this other guy because there's a race problem? I mean, what is wrong with these people? This is Peter. Who is he a strength? Who is he, a mighty man of God? And so, isn't God wonderfully great to give each one of us the opportunity so we can display our might and ability and our knowledge and whatever else we have? And Jesus was so good to give that opportunity to Peter. You are going to be the display of how great a man is, Peter. And when the opportunity came, Peter fell apart denying Jesus three times because that's the display of all of our humanity. That's the display of every one of us when we come to the test of how great we are. No matter how much the friendship, no matter how much the blessing, no matter how long the association, we will deny him every time. As we walk in our own strength and abilities. In fact, this same man wrote years later, 1 Peter 5, 5. God does what? Resist the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I know we've talked about and we need to get an ever-increasing understanding and experience of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. I don't know what it must have been like for this apostle. Denying Jesus and then watching them beat him half to death, take him up the hill, nail him to a crucifix, a cross, raise him up, and have him suffering there for all those hours. What must Peter have felt? If anybody must have felt that it was all over, finished, no more hope, If anybody has gone to the place where you can't come back, it was the apostle Peter. 
If anyone has gone to the extreme that it cannot be redone or restored, it was the apostle Peter. If anyone had no more hope, it was this guy. You see, the other apostles left, but they didn't deny Jesus three times with cursings. I can just hear Peter remembering after having denied Jesus and leaving the place and weeping bitterly. I think he probably weeped for three days. The guy literally, literally must have been drained. Can you hear The word of Jesus in Peter's mind as Jesus spoke to the Pharisees several weeks before. Remember what Jesus said? If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. I believe Peter was scared as anybody ever has been afraid in their lives. I think it had to have been, I've denied him. He said, if we deny him, he's going to deny us even before the Father. What about all these years? What, what have I done? Have you ever been in a place where you wake up from sin? I have, and realize, what have I done? I'll deny you before my father if you deny me before men. And Peter, not only once, but twice, but three times with all kinds of expletives. Will Jesus banish me? Will he deny me? So remember three days later, Jesus appears in the upper room that evening of the resurrection. Peace be with you. Be not afraid. And I can imagine, how, how do you think Peter felt when Jesus all of a sudden appeared in the room? I mean, really, you've done the worst thing that you can imagine, and now here he is. How many of us have done nasties, thought nasties, acted nastily, or said nasties about someone, and then we meet them? And how do we feel about it? Oh, how you doing there? Who? If there was a hole to get in, you and I would have gotten in the hole. Don't we feel kind of low, embarrassed, or whatever? Don't you feel like that? Am I the only one who's experienced this? And here comes the Lord of glory into the room. How many, how many, how many, I mean, you know, AJ, where are you? AJ. How many, how many, how many, how many, how many, remember that? That's a local thing. Just honeymooners know how that is. I mean, he had to do some how many, how many, how many. And that's not speaking in tongues either. Phil just thought I was having a new doctrine here, speaking in tongues. You calm down, brother. You don't have to call me. <laughs> you already got it written down. Call Peter. <laughs> what must Peter have felt? Think about it. These are real people. This is real. This is what's going on in my life and in your life. But you know, the first meeting went well. Jesus didn't say a word. I wonder if he forgot. Come on, come on. When you don't get the hand of God on you the way you thought, how many of us think God forgot? Come on, come on, really. Come on, come on. Be with me. 
<laughs> He's talking about forgetful here. I didn't lose my mind. I just don't know if I ever had one. Listen, God doesn't forget. Your sins and your trespasses I will remember against you no more. But he does remember. God does not have old-timers disease. He will remember. Alzheimer's for those of you who are not from New Orleans. Old-timers for New Orleans people. Look. Man. Thank goodness. He didn't say anything. I was embarrassed enough. (sighs) Maybe everything's going to be okay. (sighs) Kind of relax a little bit. (sighs) Eight days later. John chapter 21, eight days later. The guy's out fishing. Y'all catch anything, my children? Throw your net on the other side. They throw it over and all the fish come into this net. And John says to Peter, it's the Lord. Man, now I have an opportunity to show Jesus how faithful I am and how much I love him. Oh, now I can display You know, I can get back in his graces. Now I can do something that will cause him to receive me. I'm out of this boat, and I'm into the shore, and I'm right in his face. Jesus, oh, I just love you so much. I just love you. I just love you so much. You see, if I can say it enough, he may not bring up the other stuff. You know what I mean? Are you with me? Maybe he's forgotten, and if he hasn't forgotten, at least he certainly can't say anything negative when I have showed such devotion to him. (laughs) I'm so good. I am amazed with my abilities. No wonder he called me Rock. (laughs) And in all of this, if there has to be a little discipline, maybe Jesus will be easy on me. Got to do the right thing, church. Mm. Got to pave the way. Make sure we're doing it right so God can be kind to us. So they're having a good meeting, man, a good, they, they, they find speckled trout. Isn't that mean since we can't have any? That was a mean blow. And after the meeting, Jesus says, <coughs> Peter. Ooh, I didn't. Let's read John 21, 15 to 17. Now put yourself, put yourself here. You know, we, we, we read the word and we want to get through this stuff. And I read my word today and I had my little prayer time. Get yourself into the word. Feel the word. Feel it. This is a real man being confronted by the reality of his sin by God. This is real. When they had finished the breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, now you notice he hadn't used the word Peter. He didn't use the word rock this time. He went back to his fleshly, natural name. Peter, I'm sorry, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I certainly do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Yes, indeed, I certainly do love you more than these. You know I do. Mm. That wasn't bad. Whew, I got out of that one. Then feed my lambs. Okay, I'll be glad to. Jesus says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? <laughs> well, yes, Lord, I certainly do love you. Yes. I've said it before. Yes. It's a second time. Yes, yes. Tend my sheep. Third time, Simon, son of Jonah, John, do you love me? That's the one where the knife went into his heart. Do you love me? That's the one where the knife of truth pierced the heart of the flesh. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And I can just hear him thinking, I love you. I do love you. What went on and why I did what I did, I don't have a category for it. But I genuinely do love you. Don't hold my sin against me. Please give me a second chance. Don't take me out of the band of disciples, Lord. Feed my sheep. Why did Jesus ask these questions? What was the process that was going on? It was a process of restoration. Peter was encountering the God who restores. And when God begins to talk to us about our lives and about our deficiencies, failures, and sins, and whatever... We need not begin to guard ourselves or put up a defensive system or try to defray, you know, but open your heart and receive this interrogation, if you would, by a very carefully loving, gentle, but very strong and persistent surgeon. So he can dig out of us as deeply as he needs to go the sin that has caused the problem. You see, he was digging deeply into Peter's heart and soul. He was revealing, he was dealing, and he was healing. God does that directly with us. He does it through the reading of his word. He does it in relationships so often. Relationships in friendships, one or two people, relationships in meetings, relationships in covenant groups. This is what all that is about. These are opportunities for us to encounter the God who is desiring to restore us. The Lord was revealing, he was dealing, and he was healing. A 
by commanding Peter to feed or tend his sheep. Remember, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus was assuring Peter that he was fully forgiven and restored. I'm not going to do something weird to you, Peter. I'm not going to be like other people. But you see, Peter was not only personally restored, he was restored to have one of the most effective gospel ministries anyone ever had. I can just say one thing. Oh, the radical love of God. You see, Peter's sin was great and grievous. But it was not greater than God's restoration. It's not greater. Romans 5.20 tells you that. And not only did God restore Peter to relationship with him, not only does God want to restore us to relationships, Listen to this carefully. Because you see, there are a lot of us who don't mind being restored to that relationship if it's just going to be a minimal relationship. God restored Peter to relationship and deepened it in the process. There are relationships that God is wanting to restore and thankfully is restoring in this church. But he's not restoring it just so we can tolerate one another so that we can grow deeper into this restoration God of ours. If you're in relationship difficulty for whatever the reason with anyone at all, don't let yourself be muzzled by the enemy to think, It's just a little bit of friendship and how you're doing and good to see, but I'm not going to go any further with that. That is not God. God always restores to deepen the roots. Always restores to deepen the roots. What happened? Peter on the day of Pentecost, thousands are saved. How could a man who denied Jesus three times like this be restored so effectively? How can a man be like that? How can God do this? Because God is not a man. He is the God who restores. God isn't a man. There's so many examples. But the few that we've shared this morning are the result of the gospel. You know why David was restored or could be restored? You know why Zacchaeus was restored or could be restored? You know why Peter was restored or could be restored? Why could God be the God of restoration for these men, these women? Because Jesus has paid the full, final, forever price at the cross and in his resurrection God brings forth his great work of restoration in the risen Jesus Christ 
And not only does he restore us, but he takes us from the lowest place to the highest place, his heavenly kingdom. God not only restores, but he lavishly does so. Is God still the God who restores? Does he still restore today? They're not here today, but how many of you know Linda and Ray Pratt's? Married, divorced for years, restored as husband and wife. Yes. Is God still the God who restores? Ray and Pam Zarang. Same kind of testimony. Married, divorced, all kinds of junk in the middle, restored. Does God restore today? Porter, where are you? Stand up. Where's Diane Porter? Stand up. Does God restore? On the deathbed, at least twice that I can remember, I went in there twice. She was not going to live. God restores. What in your life is apart from the ability of God to restore? Nothing except your resistance. First Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Because your adversary, like a roaring lion, seeks whom he may devour, prowling about. Remember that? Our lives roar with failure, defeat, disaster, sin, brokenness, you name it, we got it. And the devil roars out all of that venom. And we hear it year after year. Years of roaring. But then the voice of the Son of God breaks through and he says, I am the God who restores. Let me tell you what you do. When you begin to hear the roaring of that toothless lion concerning your sin, your past, God's inability, his lack of desire, when you hear the roar, you bellow back. Bellow back. Why? 1 John 4, 4. For he who is in me is greater than you who are in the world. My God restores. I am an example of it. And for every one of you who have been restored to eternal life, stand up and let's say, God restores. Amen? How many of us have been born again and saved? This is a house filled with the restoration of God's work of restoration. God restores. Go with it. When love came down to earth and made his home with man, the hopeless fa- 